Hello, my name is Jody Lima, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, posted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing John David Anderson. Uh, he's author of Miss Bixby's Last Day, which was subject of a previous podcast, as well as author of the recent middle-grade novel One Last Shot. And we're going to be talking about The Book of Three, which is the first book of Lloyd Alexander's classic fantasy series, The Chronicles of Prydane. But first, as always, uh, we're going to start with a poem. And the title of the poem I'm going to read today is A Small Needful Fact uh, by Ross Gay. And it's a poem which, on the day I'm recording this, just seemed like the right poem to read. A Small Needful Fact is that Eric Garner worked for some time for the Parks and Rec Horticultural Department, which means, perhaps, that with his very large hands, perhaps, in all likelihood, he put gently into the earth some plants which, most likely, some of them, in all likelihood, continue to grow, continue to do what such plants do, like house and feed small and necessary creatures, like being pleasant to touch and smell, like converting sunlight into food, like making it easier for us to breathe. My guest today is John David Anderson, author of Granted, Miss Bixby's Last Day, which was the subject of another Dreams Garden podcast, uh, Posted, and Finding Orion. You can find Dave's website at www.johndavidanderson.org. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Dave. Thanks for having me, Jody. Uh, like I mentioned, your your latest book that you had published is Finding Orion. Can you talk a little bit about what that book is about? Yeah, so that book uh, is about a very quirky family. I mean, literally, they're called the Quirks, uh, K-W-I-R-K-S. Um, and in, in the very first chapter, they learned that their grandfather, Papa Quirk, has passed away. And so the journey that they go on is one about uh, the nature of legacy and how, you know, different people remember, you know, the deceased differently and the impact that a person can have uh, far reaching not only on family, but on community. And so as the as the main character Orion, because all of the kids are named after constellations, uh, as he goes through this process of understanding what his grandfather meant to him, he also learns more about what his father means to him and his sisters and uh, all these things. And it's sort of an absurd novel in one way. I mean, ultimately, they go on a scavenger hunt to go find their grandfather's remains uh, because they don't end up in the casket. Um, instead, they get a clue, right, to, that leads them to more and more clues. And so it's a, a mystery story and an adventure story. But it's also just a heartfelt family tale where all the kids eventually come to grips with the impact that they're going to have on each other. And what was the uh, the inspiration for the story? Where did the idea for this come from for you? Honestly, uh, my own personal life, I was dealing with a family member. My father was very ill. And so I was grappling with the idea of the legacy that he was going to leave behind and the impact that he had on me and on my kids. And I wanted to go on a journey of self-discovery through this other character. And it's a coming-of-age novel, but I don't think coming-of-age is something – that we do just when we're, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. I think it's something that we can also do when we're 44 or 45 uh, and we're faced with, you know, 
a truth that still shocks us, you know, even though we know it's coming, like uh, it's a second revelation. And so dealing with that truth, staring me in the face, um, I decided to write, you know, kind of writing as therapy, um, but I knew I needed to make it humorous, right? Because uh, if we don't laugh, obviously we're going to cry. And so I was able to, I think, cope with a lot of that stuff, but at the same time, explore a lot of the things that I love about families, uh, especially how unavoidable they are, right? Um, and there's so many ways that you can navigate around friendships, right? But families, they just hit you right in the face uh, from the moment that you're born. You can't escape them. Uh, you just have to find a way to deal with them. And that's a lot of what the book is about. That's interesting. I, I, I haven't had a chance to read this, but I read uh, uh, Ms. Bixby's Last Day, which I enjoyed a great deal. And there's some some threads of similar themes uh, dealing with uh, loss and sort of letting go that it's, it's a very different story, but, uh, but I, I see sort of uh, the threads uh, going from the way you're describing it that are commonalities, at least between the two novels. Yeah. So, I mean, Miss Bixby's last day is proactive in a way in which it asks the question, if you see loss coming, right, uh, what can you do to, I don't know, solidify the relationship or at least let the person know how much they meant to you. Uh, whereas in Finding Orion, it's after the fact, right? And so it's a question of when you can't get the answers directly from the source or when you can't make amends with the person that's passed, then how do you make amends with yourself? Is there part of uh, uh, Finding Orion that you'd like to share? Sure. Uh, I can actually share the end of the first chapter. I should set it up a little bit. Ryan, Ryan Quirk lives with his, his mother and his father and his two sisters. His father is a jelly bean maker. So he creates these sort of noxious flavors for every flavor jelly beans. And he's just unlocked the flavor for fried chicken and he thinks it's going to make a million dollars. And so that's what they were eating for dinner. And there's a knock at the door. And of course, all the kids go to the door to see who it is. And it's a clown. And the clown says he has a singing telegram for the Quirk family. The clown, by the way, is named Chuckles McLapsalot. Chuckles hummed once more, getting his pitch before launching into a familiar tune, though I couldn't place the name of it. Sort of folksy, almost like an old nursery rhyme. The clown tapped one oversized red shoe as he sang. Oh, Papa Quirk, he made life grand. He laughed big laughs. He made big plans. By all accounts, a Superman. But Papa Quirk has kicked the can. Chuckles has it. Just for a second, scanning our faces, I wasn't entirely sure I'd heard him right. Or maybe I had, but I was waiting for something else. A punchline. An explanation. An actual chuckle from Chuckles. I stole a look at Dad, who was standing behind me, but he just looked as confused as I was. Our collective stunned silence only seemed to spur the clown on. Yes, he's met the maker. He's at the gate. He's pushed up daisies. He's found his fate. He's belly up. He bit the dust. He's counting worms. He's gathering rust. He bought the farm, cashed in his chips, went on a never-ending trip, took a deep six dirt nap underground, and now he's finally homeward bound. And that is why I'm here today to tell you that he passed away. But he doesn't want you feeling down, and that is why he sent a clown to say that even though he's gone, his love for you goes on and on. Yes, Papa Quirk was a grand old man, but Papa Quirk has kicked the can. Chuckles finished the song by shaking his white-gloved hands showbiz style before stuffing them awkwardly into his oversized pants pockets. That's it, he said. The clown stared at us. We stared back paralyzed. A clump of speechless quirks crowding the entryway. 
An entire minute passed, which doesn't sound like very long, until you're staring at a man in an orange wig and size 20 shoes who's just informed you that your grandfather is dead. Then one minute seems like a million. My father was the first to speak. Are you joking? Chuckles raised a bushy blue eyebrow. Do I look like I'm joking? There was no good answer to this question. Listen, you seem like a nice bunch of folks, and I don't mean to upset you, the clown continued. I just do what I'm told. I don't write the songs, I just sing them. Maybe it is a joke, but if it's not, then, you know, I'm really sorry for your loss. My parents looked at each other, my mother's forehead creasing, my dad's mouth opening and closing wordlessly. Cass looked like she'd been told she lost the leading role in the school play. Lyra looked skeptical, but that's how she always looks. And I just kept thinking the same thing over and over. This can't be real. Papa work. Can't be dead. Chuckles McLassalot removed one hand from his pocket and held something out to us. A trio of rainbow swirl circles on sticks. Lollipop, he said. So that's how it kicks off. Oh, very nice. Very nice. It does capture that sort of uh, unreality sometimes uh, people feel in moments like that. It just seems absurd and strange and not quite happening. <laughs> So are there any other books that you're currently working on or things you're expecting to come out sometime in the future? Yeah, so I have a book that comes out with Harper in May called One Last Shot. I like to dabble in different genres. So, you know, I've written fantasy novels and superhero stories and realistic fiction. And I got it in my head that I wanted to write a sports novel, uh, you know, just to try to reach out to a little bit different audience, play with different conventions and that kind of thing. Uh, the problem was I'm terrible at pretty much every sport. So I tried to think of the one sport that I was halfway decent at that I knew a little bit about. And so the novel that comes out in May, One Last Shot, I think it'll be the first middle grade novel ever written about miniature golf. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the character, the main character, his father was an athlete in high school and college and sort of has that a little bit of that jock mentality um, and, you know, really wants to find the one thing that his son is good at uh, and to nurture it. And it discovers that it's miniature golf. But then he ends up pushing it a little too far, uh, gets him a miniature golf coach as if there actually is such a thing, you know, enrolls him in the miniature golf championships and, and, and all this stuff. Uh, and so then miniature golf becomes a metaphor for a lot of the things that the main character is negotiating with his parents. Um, and their rocky marriage and friendships and all that other stuff. Uh, and the, the novel's told in 18 chapters, representing the 18 holes that he plays during this championship match. Uh, and then in each one, of course, it flashes back to everything that led up to that point. I cannot think of any other novel offhand uh, that deals with miniature golf. So you might be right. It may be the first. You um, got to find your niche. <laughs> Now, I should let people know listening that uh, we're recording this in February. Uh, this, will, this is coming out June. So for readers who are listening, uh, by the time they hear this, uh, the book will actually be out because it's coming out in May and they'll hear this in June. So uh, at the time we're recording this, it hasn't come out yet. By the time you're he everybody's hearing this, they can go ahead and get the book. Just, just so they're aware of that. Right. Yes, please do. <laughs> yeah. Now, I understand you also do um, school visits now and then, uh, going into schools and doing uh, presentations. Talk a little bit about what that experience would be like uh, for the kids who show up for the school visits, uh, w w what you do. Yeah, so it's pretty high octane, high energy. Um, I usually break the day down into two different parts. 
there'll be big group presentations, you know, PowerPoint slideshows, me making a fool out of myself, um, little games and activities, a lot of back and forth with the audience in which I discuss, you know, the things that I think are most important to being a writer and a storyteller, things like, you know, drawing sources of inspiration from all around you uh, and using your imagination to ask questions that nobody's thought to ask before. Uh, what if scenarios, right? And and how come questions. Um, and then I talk about perseverance and how important that is to being a writer and how difficult writing, writing well actually is. Um, and, you know, all throughout the attempt is to get kids not just to be more interested in reading, uh, but to think about the stories that they tell and the impact that those stories can have. And then through the other parts of the day, usually I have the chance to do writer's workshops. Um, so then, you know, kids and I usually I usually present to fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh graders just because that's where the interest of my books lies. Um, and so, you know, we'll work on a short story or work on character development or that kind of thing. Uh, and that's great because, you know, there's a, a lot of kids who, you know, in a group of 300 would be shy about asking questions or engaging with an author. But you get them in a group of 20 uh, and you get them with some sentences in front of them. And all of a sudden um, they feel a, a very strong emotional connection. Now, obviously, uh, you're going there to help the kids out with their own writing. Is there something that you get back from the kids by doing these visits as well? I explicitly go in there with the intention of getting stuff from them. Um, and so I will ask them, you know, about lingo and dialogue uh, and, you know, what the what the coolest things are, right, that I should be at least aware of, if not mentioning directly in my books. Um, I'll pitch ideas off of them. Uh, we'll sometimes try to think of alternative titles to some of the books that I've published, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think it's incredibly important for especially authors of children's literature to stay in close contact with that target audience. And school visits is probably my number one way of doing that. And to see what kids are really interested in and the sort of books they really want to read. Well, and to get their honest opinion on everybody's books, but my books specifically, you know, because I can read reviews and, and this is not to diss reviews, but, you know, a lot of the reviews that I read are from adults. They're from librarians or teachers or from, you know, school library journal. And that's great. But I also want to know what, you know, a 10 year old thought of my book. And sometimes their honesty can be very refreshing. <laughs> so you've gotten some uh, good feedback or sometimes feedback that's uh, you know, a very like you said, sometimes kids can be sometimes very and sometimes brutally honest. Right, some soul shattering feedback. Yeah, <laughs> which after a time, I suppose, can be very helpful as well. It is absolutely. Now, the book you picked as one of your own personal favorite um, kids' books is The Book of Three, which is a book one of the Chronicles of uh, Pyridane, uh written by uh, Lloyd Alexander. Uh, for readers who haven't had a chance to read either this book or even the whole series of books, can you talk a little bit of what it's about? Yeah, so if you've ever read a fantasy series, then I think you know what it's about. I mean... At the time, you know, it was published in the 60s, and so I think there's a lot, if we put it in its context, that we can see as original. Um, but just about every fantasy trope that you imagine being in a series is in this one. Uh, and it tells the story of its main character. His name is Terran. He is an assistant pig keeper. Um, and he dreams, of course, of a life of grand adventure, as most, you know, fantasy young people do. 
And of course, in the first chapter, the big baddie shows up, threatens the whole land, and Taryn is called upon. Initially, he's called upon to take care of the pig. Um, but when the pig escapes, then it leads him down one series of adventures after another. And, you know, as as these things do, if you're a hobbit, right, your world gets bigger and bigger once you get out of the Shire. It's the same thing for Taryn. Once he gets out of his small little patch of land, he encounters all sorts of strange folks and beings and political machinations and all kinds of uh, terrible, horrible things that might happen. Um, and through all kinds of friends that he meets along the way, obviously he grows into becoming the hero that he always hoped he'd be. So that's a coming of age story, you know, a traditional fantasy fair. And when did you first encounter this book? I think I was 10 or 11 years old. I was around that age. So it was sort of prime middle grade reading. And what I remember about it is that I was not a heavy duty reader at the time. Um, we didn't have a whole lot of access to books. We had a library card, which was great, but we didn't own a lot of books in the house. But these were ones that I remember getting as a gift. And so, the, number one, it was a book that I owned. And I think just owning a book automatically gives you a more personal relationship to it. Um, obviously, I'm not going to say don't go to libraries, right? Um, but there's something about just having it there, knowing that you can pick it up and read it again whenever you want, you know, dog-earing the copy, um, seeing your little Dorito chip stains on the pages, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and so I encountered it when I was 10, 11. This is the same time that I became sort of a huge Star Wars fan. And so I was very much wanting to have uh, a place in an escapist fantasy world. And I had a rich imagination. I had a huge uh, forest by my house that I could escape to for eight hours a day, you know, in the summers uh, and just imagine myself, you know, grab a stick. That's my sword. Uh, and imagine myself going on these adventures with these characters. As you mentioned, Taryn is our hero and he's an assistant pig keeper, not even a regular pig keeper. He's just the assistant pig keeper. He's a, he's a very, like in many of these fantasy stories, he's an unlikely hero. And as many characters keep reminding him, he's also a bit, sometimes can be a bit full of himself. He constantly misreads others in the situation, what's called for, and makes a lot of mistakes. So what is it about him or this kind of hero that makes him such an appealing kind of hero? I think you actually hit it. Uh, it's just how flawed he is. And all of the characters in this book and in the entire series have, you know, various foibles and eccentricities uh, and things that annoy you about them and definitely limitations that they have to overcome. Um, Taryn, I have to be honest, is not my favorite character by far. Um, for me, I mean, I could identify with him, obviously, and as the protagonist, you're sort of forced to go on the journey with him. And I appreciate that, you know, he learns a lot. And especially by the later books, I think he becomes, you know, really great and well-developed. But he doesn't have the personality for me that a lot of the other characters did uh, that jumped out. Um, but I think what you like about him is this notion that you, it's easier to see yourself in him uh, than maybe some of the other characters especially if you're young and you don't know a lot about your own self, right? You're still undergoing that process of self-discovery, uh, trying to find out about your identity. And I think Terrence obviously doing that, right? Um, and so there's an empathetic connection 
with Taryn and the almost blank slate that he is. Like he's an assistant pig keeper only because, you know, Cole said, I'm giving you a title, you're an assistant pig keeper. And so like he's got to sort of grow into the labels uh, that he wants for himself and the labels that other people give him. I, you mentioned that that uh, you know there there are other characters are more appealing and like a lot of uh, Lloyd Alexander's book as the adventure goes on we get to meet a lot of characters you know interesting people we meet uh, Gurgi you know this sort of very hairy and somewhat wild creature who t- turns out to have unexpected uh, um, qualities to him and Ellen Wee I may not be saying that right uh, the girl who helps her out who sort of puts him in his place quite a bit and a flirter flam. Uh, the the king would be bard who has I guess that liar who calls him out <laughs> every once in a while as well. So did you uh, those characters or any uh, any of the other characters? Did you have a particular favorite of yours, one that really appealed to you, or a couple of them? Uh, I think two of the ones that you mentioned for sure. Um, Fluter, I think what I love about him is the contrast between him and Taryn. You know, Terran's an assistant pigkeeper who dreams of being a hero. Uh, Fludor was a king who decided that he was just going to give it all up and become, you know, a traveling bard. Uh, and so you have this sort of reversal of fortunes and the motivations behind those um, make an interesting play. But you're right. I mean, he's, he carries this leer. The string breaks every time he ventures into hyperbole, right, exaggerates or lies. Um, it's kind of like a Pinocchio uh, of the fantasy world. And then you have, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right either, Ilanwi, um, who I think at the time was probably my first exposure to, because like I said, I hadn't read a ton of books, but a strong fantasy female character. And that was really influential to me as a writer, right? Because I think so many of those early fantasy novels fall under the trap of you know, male protagonists, right? Um, the king is the heir, whatever it is. It, we were a long cry from Katniss Everdeen, you know, at that point 50 years ago. Um, but you see sort of a nation form of that in this princess who is not a typical Disney princess. She's a smart aleck, right? She definitely a fiery temper and a fiery tongue. Um, she has a great way with words, uh, just a lot of fun ways that she uses similes and metaphors in the book and describes things. And her action with Taryn was great because, you know, I was 10 or 11, so I understood romance on a very idyllic sense, right? Uh, but I wasn't to the point where I was 15 and romance was taking on, you know, uh, a sort of new terminology. And the romance between these two, I mean, it takes five books to develop and it's all very sort of chaste and sort of mock flirtatious, right? Um, but it was just it was just pitched at just the right level for me at that age. Um, where I could identify with the back and forth between Taryn and Alangmi. Hmm. And she doesn't um, need rescuing uh, from him. And often she's uh, actually a couple times she rescues him from particular uh, situations and keeps reminding him that he is the assistant pig keeper. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, she definitely puts him in his place. And he deserves to be put in his place too, right? Because I think one of the things about Taryn is – Strangely, a sense of entitlement, right? Um, and you wonder where that came from, but he does have it. Uh, I think it's almost like a fantasy hero entitlement. Uh, you know, I'm on the cover of the book, therefore I must be awesome. 
Now, like, like a lot of these books, um, you know, uh, you know, a, a villain, a bad guy is important. And we do meet Queen Akron briefly, and I think she becomes more important in, in the later books. But really the sort of the main villain of the piece is the Horned King. And what's interesting is we really don't have too many um, – times in the book where we meet him briefly in the beginning and I believe towards the end and uh, the his reasons for being there and his motivation is, are unclear and yet he's still a very daunting figure and I'm just wondering is about a, a villain like that who's sort of a bit of a shadowy figure uh, who sort of you know looms over the novel at the same time we're not exactly sure what or who he is and I think as a writer now looking back on it from the years of reading experience I have, I kind of see the one dimensionality of some of the villains in the series as being a bit of a weakness. Um, but when you're a kid, I think that notion of this sort of placeholder villain, which is just, you say, this shadowy, dark, mysterious figure who's um, obviously got a very visual um, symbolization to him, right? Uh, so you can picture him easily and he can easily become the stuff of your nightmares, right? Uh, then it's good because then you can sort of substitute all of your other nightmares and fears and insecurities onto him. Uh, and so then to be able to imagine yourself as a hero and then having the agency to somehow defeat him um, becomes more powerful to you, right? Um, and so as a kid, I think that's terrific and it's fantastic even though as an adult writer i maybe wish there was a little bit more nuance or depth especially in terms of like the character's motives uh, but then again like i said at the time i was a huge star wars fan uh, and so the idea that there just are forces of darkness out there um, who just want power for power's sake uh, and to take over the world and rid it of all good I'm not saying those forces aren't out there now, obviously, um, but I think as a kid, it becomes a lot as – a, as a young reader, I think it's just a lot easier for us to um, find our own motivation to overcome it when it's put in somewhat more binary terms. Yeah, so you're right. He's a very visual, um, almost cinematic sort of villain, but we really don't know exactly – actually anything about what's going on in his head. Well, and I don't think we have to because I don't think that matters. I I wouldn't argue that – I mean the plot of Book of Three is pretty frenetic in terms of like the action never really lets up. But I don't remember reading it for plot when I was a kid. I remember reading it for character. Uh, I remember identifying and falling in love with this band of misfits. Um, and I was more interested in the little quibbles and – you know, sarcastic zings that would, they would throw back and forth at each other. Um, not that I would skip over when somebody drew a sword, you know, um, but it was almost more interesting to me to watch them interact with each other than to interact with the villain. I think as a young reader, you're focused on certain things, but I know reading as Lloyd Alexander as an adult, uh, the appeal to me is just how he, I mean, these are, they're epic books and yet they're also very short books. He doesn't write huge, massive uh, books, even though this is a series. So the way he structures uh, plot and character and setting uh, very tightly, I just um, want to talk a little bit about that. And as an adult and an author, uh, what you see uh, in uh, him as an author, as a writer in his craft and how he constructs uh, you know, makes these worlds and creates these characters and keeps things moving along pretty quickly. Right. And obviously, if you're a young reader, that's ideal. 
you know, uh, especially if you were uh, a reader who wasn't really interested in books. I sat down with Tolkien about the same time that I sat down with Lloyd Alexander and in the interest of full confession, and I apologize to your listeners, uh, but at the age of 10 or 11, like I couldn't get through it. You know, I struggled and I put it down and it, I didn't even get back to uh, the ring uh, cycle until I was in college, you know, just because my young experiences sort of put me off as saying, you know, this is not accessible to me. Um, but Lloyd Alexander was instantly accessible. And a lot of that has to do with you know, brevity of prose, uh, those short, snappy sentences, tons of dialogue. Um, and not a lot of description like uh, this is this is not a Tolkien-esque world where you have to go on about four pages and there's a lot of back history that you have to get into to understand the, the true depth. I'm not saying that Alexander doesn't world build because he does, but it's, you know, scattershot. It's like bits and pieces. He gives you just enough um, so that you can kind of see the backdrop as you're galloping along at a frenetic pace uh, to get to the next adventure. And as a writer, I've I, obviously I appreciate that, uh, and it's something that I think as my writing has evolved, I've gotten more and more to writing in that style. So you know, when I first started out, uh, I was flowing and flowery and um, sort of in love with my own language and turn of phrase, uh, and now I'm just like, uh, let's get to the snappy dialogue, right? Uh, let's get to the action sequence and have some fun with us. Yeah, I think I've I've learned more about plot from reading Lloyd Alexander about how to structure, you know, how to really think about how, you know, the shape of a story. Because uh, he really does, uh, I mean, right away, this we sort of landed right into the story right from the beginning. And uh, I think Meet the Horned King right in the second chapter. You do, yes. Uh, I mean, the threat is right there. Um, and then, you know, you could argue that some of the, there's definitely a sort of mechanism, mechanization, not mechanization, but um, mechanations going on. Like, of course, the pig has to escape. Well, the pig has to escape so we can chase the pig uh, so we can get into this adventure. And of course, when you steal the sword, the tower collapses, and you think this one character is dead. But guess what? Um, that helps me give you a twist at the end. And so you can kind of see the wizard working behind the curtain. Right. But at the same time, like when you're 10 or 11 and if the pace is that quick, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, because you're invested. And like I said, because you love the characters and you want to see what happens to them. Now, this book, this book he uses, uh, it's based on a lot of Welsh myth. And I guess that's true for a lot of uh, his books. They're they're taken from uh, different uh, myth stories and characters and myths. And he sort of fashions uh, that into um, his own, you know, for his own use in making this particular story. Um, just wondering, uh, ever think about how he uses, you know, sort of existing myth and uh, and for the purposes of telling, you know, uh, a story that's uh, appealing to a younger crowd. You know what I think is great about that is that you know this book was published in the '60s, and you you think about the number of novels that we have now for young people. And you think about the novel, number of novels that we had back then for young people. Uh, and to think that even back then, you know, our really our greatest fantasy authors still had to draw on the works of the people that came before him. And so you imagine like how much now authors have to draw on like uh, just the sheer breadth of stories that we're um, borrowing from. And so I think there, there's a familiarity there, obviously. Um one example is, and this isn't from that first book, uh, but it has to do with – well, it actually is. I think it's at the ending of the first book. They each get a gift, 
um, as you know, a result of their you know helping to save the land from the Horn King. Uh, and each of their gifts has to do with uh, a weakness or you know a, a lack that they had, right? Um, so. Dolly gets to turn invisible, and Flutterer gets a new string for his weir that won't break. Uh, and of course, I'm immediately reminded of uh, Frank Elbaum and the Wizard of Oz, right? Uh, because they each get the gift that applies to them. And of course, what does Taryn want? He just wants to go home, right? Uh, so you can almost imagine him clicking his heels. Uh, and so it's this notion that, you know, fantasy draws on not just in this case, wealth mythology, but I think uh, all the fantasy that's ever came before it, right? All of our worlds build upon our other worlds. And that's comforting in a way, right? Um, because it allows us not only to have that familiarity with it, uh, but to see how an author will twist it um, and change it to reflect what's going on specific in their day. Now, I mentioned this earlier that this is actually the first of five books uh, called The Chronicles of uh, Pyridane. And I think you touched upon a pair that we see as we go through the novels. We actually see some further character uh, development. And, and I don't know, it, I, I think it may have been a while since you read the other novels uh, in the series. Well, can you talk just a little bit about uh, sort of things? If somebody has read this book is interested in what they might have to look forward to and in general i suppose and as the the series goes on how it sort of grows and how the characters grow yeah so i mean one of the interesting things is about the growth of Terran himself because he is the constant in a way through all five books and you want to see him come in to become the hero that he needs to be at the end of the first book one of the things I loved about it was the twist. And I don't know how many spoilers we're allowed to give, um, but the assumption, of course, is that Terran is going to be able to defeat the Horn King in one way or another, and he doesn't. Right? It's not him who uh, sort of finishes it off there at the end of that first book, uh, and so the satisfaction of him gaining more power as it goes along and learning more about his identity. Um, I think it's the fourth book, Terran Wanderer, is very much a coming-of-age journey and a discovery about who he is and what makes him the kind of person he is and what he needs to overcome in order to have the strength required for the ultimate battle, right, uh, and the High King in the fifth book. Uh, and, you know, I rushed through them when I was a kid. Thankfully, thankfully they had all been published at that point. So I got the whole collection. Uh, I didn't have to wait like I did in between a new hope and empire strikes back, which was frustrating. Um, and empire strikes back and return of the Jedi. Uh, and so it was one of those things where I feel like the, the whole thing builds really nicely not just in terms of the plot and the tension um, and the character relationships, especially between Terran and Elinwi, uh, but also just his own journey of self-discovery really carries on through all five books. So it's definitely uh, for people interested in this book to really just go through and read the, the, the entire of the Chronicles. And I don't think, I mean, I'd be hard pressed to say if you, if you really crack open that first one and you get through the first 50 pages, then I think it's addictive. And uh, I mean, obviously I'm biased, um, but I, I'd be hard pressed to find somebody who doesn't just pick up the second one and keep on going. I don't think there's a weak link anyways. Is there a particular uh, passage from the book you'd like to share? 
So one of the things I love most about the book, uh, actually, this is probably the thing I love most about the book, is the humor. Uh, this is not to say that the you know the other books that I was reading at the time, Chronicles of Narnia, or like I said, I tried to get into Tolkien, didn't have humorous points. But I, there's like every other page, there's a laugh-inducing moment in Lloyd Alexander, and I think you see that from the very beginning. And so, just uh, the like the first six lines of the book, Taryn wanted to make a sword, but Call, charged with the practical side of his education, decided on horseshoes. And so it had been horseshoes all morning long. Taryn's arm ached, soot blackened his face. At last, he dropped the hammer and turned to Call, who was watching him critically. Why? Taryn cried. Why must it be horseshoes? As if we had any horses. Call was stout and round, and his great bald head glowed bright pink. Lucky for the horses, was all he said. And so, you know, to start out, number one, you're sort of undermining um, the notion of what a hero should be up to, right? Taryn knows what a hero should be up to. He should be making swords. Uh, but he's not. He's making horseshoes, even though there's no horses anywhere around. Uh, not only is he making the horseshoes, but he's making them poorly. Uh, so we have a very long way to go. And we have, you know, the first of many sarcastic characters and interchanges. Uh, and that that humor hooked me. And I think it massively influenced me as a writer, because no matter what I'm writing about now, uh, whether I'm writing about a teacher who has cancer and has to leave the school year early or, you know, a school full of, you know, bullying or, um, you know, superheroes or whatever it is that I'm writing about, I always have to inject the humor. I always have to have those lighthearted moments because that's what I'm looking for as a reader, right? Uh, that little bit of levity. We also get that little uh, thumbnail sketch of Taryn as somebody who thinks he's meant for bigger things, even though he doesn't really have much to show for it at the moment. Right. Uh, and it's not a question of destiny, right? It's a question of earning it, I think. Uh, and that's really important. And, you know, I know Lloyd Alexander has this quote, we learn more by looking for the answer to a question and not finding it than we do by learning the answer itself. And so, you know, when Taryn finally finds out that the answer about who he is, it really doesn't matter. What matters is who he became in the journey of looking for it. And I think if you're 10, 11 years old, like that is a profound truth to try and come to. Um, and, you know, even at the age of 45, I think I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, as we all are. Yeah, like. right. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, Dave, thank you so much for uh, taking the time uh, both to talk to me about your own work and for uh, talking to me uh, about uh, the Book of Three. Well, thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. You can find John David Anderson's website at www.johndavidanderson.org. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in a Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.